Welcome back to the New Age Boxing Podcast with me, Andy White, and with me today, a full-strength team, including the mighty... Terry Chapandama. Martin Theobald. <laughs> really uh, enthusiastic there, Martin. Yeah, yeah, no, that's going to be my levels now for uh, for the next hour or whatever. We Has do. that got anything to do with the copious amounts of alcohol yep. you consumed last night? Yep. <laughs> Anybody following us on Twitter will know those details. Uh, we got lots to get through today. We have... The fights from Friday, we have the fights cards from last night, um, and then, well, we'll just make it up as we go along, I suppose. We've got arguing and arguable at the end, and uh, yeah, so I suppose we dive in with... What are we going to dive in with? <laughs> the Leeds card from last night. What did we think to the... I don't know what fight to start with, really. Should we go with... Um, Tyrone Nurse versus Tommy Coyle. I um, I've had views on Tyrone Nurse before that probably haven't changed from last night. He's incredibly skilled defensively. Like he's one of the slickest, in my view, one of the slickest British boxers around in terms of his defensive ability. If he had the offense to match his defense, he would be you know a world class level fighter. But he doesn't. Um, you know, Tommy Coyle, he spoke before about he's um, done too much in the past with his heart and not his head, and that was going to change for this fight, and then he didn't. He just went and like tried to turn it into a brawl from the off, um, and it was an interesting enough fight. I mean, uh, I say it's, it's frustrating watching um, Tyrone Nurse. He's kind of like... He's almost the back end of Mayweather's career, where you know he wasn't the vicious uh, kind of Mayweather of the earlier years, but more the defense-minded. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's a talent to it and there's an ability to it, but it's not always that exciting to watch. Um, so yeah, he, he won it on points. What do you reckon to it, Terry? I like Nurse. Um, Nurse is supremely skilled. Um, he just—he's one of these guys who's not blessed with a punch. So he will always be in those sorts of fights. Um, my views on Tommy Coyle, just your, you know, almost your typical northerner survives on bottle, blocks punches with his face. It entertains the fans because, to be honest, a lot of the fans know nothing, so they just assume the guy's being brave. Tommy Coyle's been stupid his whole career, um, and he's paid a heavy price. And I, I, I say that because I worry that he'll be one of those guys you see in about 20 years' time, driving a cab, barely able to speak. And, you know, as as a boxing community, we should we should protect these guys against themselves sometimes. As for Nurse, where do you go next if you're Tyrone Nurse? I don't think he's got enough power to move up to 147, so 140 is where he should stay. Um, Who's he? He's coached by Chris Aston, if I'm correct, right? Who's done a good job with him thus far. I like his defence. Actually, do you know what? Offensively, I think he's pretty smart. Like, the way he works the uppercut. No one in the UK works an uppercut as well as he does. You know, he's he's bringing it up the middle, then coming around the side, coming back up the middle. 
I just don't think he drills these things often enough. I think he boxes too much in the moment. So I don't think he sticks to a plan because you could hear his corner telling him every time, look, <laughs> there's a way that we agreed you would fight. And he'd get, he'd get 10 seconds in and go, actually, do you know what? I just want to stay in the pocket and hit him with these, with the bent arm punches, which is great if you enjoy that sort of stuff. But he's going to fight far better opponents than Tommy Coyle. You start looking at guys like Ricky Burns, <clears throat> Burns won't let you do that. So he needs to work out a way he can sustain what he does well for 12 rounds. It's strange because, I mean, the size of the guy, a light welterweight, is big. You know, he's a rangy puncher. You know, he works that jab well. And he just, he doesn't do it often enough. He's quite happy to sit back on the ropes and tuck up. And as I say, his defense is so, you know, if you're a fan of defensive boxing, it would be hard not to enjoy watching Tyrone Nurse. Like, that half guard that he works out of, and he slips and he rolls, and it must be so hard to uh, to catch. But... Yeah, to me, he just, I don't know, like, if Brizuela put down Tommy Coyle, what, three, four times at fucking lightweight, and Tyrone Nurse can't seem to, you know, yes, he damaged him, and Tommy Coyle drops her hands and gives it the big roar and what have you, and as Terry said, pretty stupid, really. Um, <laughs> if Tyrone Nurse can't damage him enough to put him over, then he's got real problems. There's someone like Jack Cattrall coming through. That'd be an interesting fight. To what I'd like to see, uh, see that one. Um, but but the thing about nurses, I, I want to defend him. If if he sat there with his coaching team and said, actually, your plan is break the guy down for the first six rounds. Just break him down with your jab. Break him down with a straight right. Don't worry about the uppercuts till the second half of the fight. Just break him down because he was breaking coil down, and you could see it. But he'd break him down, and then he'd go right. I'm going to have some fun now. I'm going to sit in the pocket and swing. And then Coyle would be like, well, actually, I'm off the hook now because there's nothing's going to frustrate you more than a guy who's taller than you jabbing you in the face and you're saying, I can't get to him. And that's what Coyle got really frustrated with. When Coyle could bury his head on Nurse's chest, you know, which is what he wanted to do, he was far happier and he was able to get shots off, not because he was skilled or because he was timing, but simply because you've got someone squared up on the ropes. So you're basically hitting a punch bag to all intents and purposes. And even if even if Nurse is putting his arms up to catch it, at some point you're going to get caught on the shoulders, you're going to get caught on the arms. Then your arms get heavy in about rounds 9 and 10, which you don't need. Is Can you make the argument that maybe, maybe that Tyron Nurse is too light? And the reason I say that is because he's so tall... If he was to go, if he was to get stockier and bigger, would he there be able, therefore be able to generate more power? Or is that just not related to that? Well, you could well we could ask Thomas Hearns that. We could ask Robert Easter Jr., who's moving around the lightweight division at five foot eleven at the moment. They all seem to be able to to generate the power. Um, if you watch someone like a Robert Easter, what makes him fantastic is he uses his leverage. So. He knows he's got longer arms than anyone in the division. So he uses the full turning circle of his torso. And those shots hurt. Um, I'm sure we'll get on to you know, the Luke Campbell fight. So let's not talk too much about Argenis Mendez. But if you see that fight, it was. you know, Not as wild as Deontay Wilder, but the same principle of just really rotating the shoulders and putting putting something behind the punches, which Nurse doesn't do. He kind of pushes out his punches, which is yeah. why he loses It's almost power. a flick, isn't it, rather than, uh, yeah. you know, rotation. It's more, I can hit you. It's not necessarily saying, I want to hurt you. And I guess it's, it'll be a mindset change. That's, you know, hopefully his coaching team can see that for themselves. So given his weaknesses, what are his prospects for the future then? 
if you if you look at his skill set, see there's no ceiling for that really. Um, it's about what he can execute, and we won't know that until he fights someone at European level or at world level coming down. You know, someone like a Paulie Malinagi would be a good fight. Maybe not next, but at some point, that would be a good barometer fight. You know Paulie would love to fight in the UK. You know, he's a thinking man's boxer. Nurse aspires to be a thinking man's boxer, it would seem. You'd want to see him against someone who's really going to test him and, you know, really work the holes in his game, and then we'll know how far he can go. Okay, you got anything to add, mate? Nope. Okay, let's t- let's move on to the Luke Campbell fight like you were talking about then. Let's get it out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you doing? Why are you clutching your head in your hand? <laughs> I despise Luke Campbell. <laughs> Diplomatically handled, mate. I don't understand how he's got a medal. I don't understand why Matchroom persists with him. I don't understand what he brings to the table. Um, just so everyone understands, the guy he fought, Argenis Mendes, got smashed in five rounds by Robert Easter Jr. No, no, Sky don't choose to mention that, so that never happened. Oh, he's a former world title holder. Oh, oh, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. Featherweight, was it, or super yeah. feather? Because uh, he didn't get just battered from pillar to post, and Easter was just having fun. I think that was on the, the Brona Theophane card, if I remember. And, you know, they, they said Mendes would be a test then. Easter blew through him. Luke Campbell, like I say, let's remember, this guy was national ABA champion in 2008. The guy's been boxing under this whole GB setup probably since about 2008, 2009 to now. He's been at elite level as an amateur, and he should be at that as a pro. And you look at him, and he's still a novice. Like, How are you getting put down by Janice Mendes? Yeah, I think he's... Um... He's a frustrating, you know, he's got good punching power. You could see that against Coyle. We could hurt Coyle more than, say, uh, you know, Tyrone Nurse did. And he got to, he's a southpaw, so, you know, he ought to be awkward. But it just, nothing seems to click. Like, it doesn't seem to be that, you can't see him moving on past where he is at the moment, which is, Eddie Hearn clearly sees him as a future world champion. He says it quite often. I don't see any way whatsoever that he picks up a lightweight world title. He doesn't fit into that mix for me. So so I have a theory about Luke Campbell. Um, I think he's caught between identities. So he was an amateur for a long time, and he was a top-level amateur for a long time. And it seems he's almost trying to hold on to that amateur style in the pros. That whole, I'm going to come into range, work, get out of range, come back in, work, get out. Which is great when you're an amateur because really you've got 12-ounce gloves on and what's coming back is slightly different to what comes back in the pros. Whereas you have someone like Mendes who was like, I'm just going to sit back. So you're going to be hopping in and out of range, but because I'm sat on my back leg, you know, it's it's ineffective. And then, you know, when you got put down, it was when Mendes just thought, you know what, bollocks to this, I'm coming forward. And just put one on, just put one on the top of his head and that was the end of it. And you almost felt that if, if Mendes wanted to, he could have made that fight a lot harder. But I have a feeling he was told, <laughs> behave yourself. Yeah. You know, because he might want to work some of these up. I mean, they'll get Mendes back for Ahara Davis at some point. So he doesn't want to burn any bridges. But I agree with Martin. Sorry to jump in there. But I agree with Martin in terms of where does this guy fit in at 135? Because if we call him a prospect, you're now dealing with having to fight guys like Ahara Davis. Maybe even a Conor Ben if he comes down in weight. If we're saying that he's ready for world level, now you're talking Robert Easter Jr., Rancis Bartholomew, 
you're talking about those sorts of guys. Um, you know, even a Javante Davis, if he wants to box at 135, Tevin Farmer has happily said he'll come and fight anyone in England at 130. I mean, even like ignoring overseas, you've got Flanagan and Crawler over here. Like, it, can you see Luke Campbell in with Crawler? Crawler would just outwork him, beat him up. And Campbell seemingly can't take a punch that well. We've seen it now with Mendy and we've seen it last night. He's, I don't know, it's not to say that he's glass chin because he gets up. Maybe it's his balance, I don't know. Like, as you say, the difference between professional and amateur, he hasn't perhaps evolved into it. I don't, he's nowhere near world level. So my theory is you'll expect to hear some nonsense around making 135 was killing me, I'm going up to 140 now. That's what I expect to hear. The normal sort of nonsense. At 140, I'll be stronger. I'll hit harder. I can sit on my punches more. I don't have to move around. They've got a nonsense. They've got a problem because of that nonsense. As you were saying about where is he? Like you can't even move him towards the British title at the moment because they've almost built him up above that level. Yeah. And now they can't go back on that because they'd look stupid for doing so. So I think they're just gonna have to sacrifice him at some point. I think. He will be, like, my guess will be, he will be a sacrificial lamb to fight one of the big American names or one of the good American names, or even someone like a Richard Comney. You know, he's fighting Robert Easter Jr., but there's been talk about building Richard Comney back in the UK. I know he's with the Sourlands. Um, yeah. So, someone like Richard Comney come over and just destroy Luke Campbell because that will make somebody else look good in doing so. I'll tell you what they'll do with Campbell they'll make him a stalking horse, he'll be the stalking horse for Flanagan. You know, because deep down, you know, Eddie Hearn wants that WBO belt because Frank Warren has it, but he doesn't want to match Crawler with Flanagan for the risk that actually Crawler might lose. So you can throw Campbell in the mix and you can get a better sense of what Flanagan does, maybe soften him up a bit and then say, right, now fight Crawler. But you wouldn't, if, if you look at how they treat Kel Brook, I think Kel Brooks delivered far more for British boxing and for matchroom than Luke Campbell has or Luke Campbell will. And Luke Campbell is still treated like this guy who has the world at his feet. Let's not forget, this is a guy who's... Is he 30 now? Yeah, yeah. He's not as young as, as people as, would yeah. assume. Jesus. Yeah. No, it's it's a problem for them, I think, because, you know, they had him and Joshua coming out of the uh, the gold medals from London... And I guess they probably assumed that they would, you know, follow a similar trajectory. And Joshua's gone on and done what he's done. And Campbell's had time out. I know there's been like illnesses around his father. And but it, to me, it's almost as if he's still not quite a devoted boxer as well. So I think, come on, we move on. Like, I can't be asked to talk about him anymore. <laughs> yeah, oh, I was about to wrap you up. So that's fine with me. Let's talk about David Allen, Dillian White. Um, I enjoyed it. I know a lot of people have slagged the fights off. A lot of people have said Dave Allen wasn't good enough. I thought Dave Allen was really, really good. There's a lot of things he does, which are quite, I call it, you know, you've heard me say this before on the podcast, those throwback fighters who, who seem to have the tricks from the 40s and the 50s nailed. And defensively, Dave Allen has that in, in patches. And that, that's the key word. So if you watch the first round, when Dillian White switched to Southpaw and was really pumping up the jab. Dave Allen had the best head movement I've seen from a heavyweight in a long time. You know, I'll, I'll put big Domac and Lardy up there as well because he can, he, you know, he pulls a lot of that stuff off as well. But to watch that sort of old school head movement where you're slipping out to the side, then you're slipping under, then you're stepping back, making all the shots miss. 
But the problem with Dave was, and you know, we've spoken to him. He's a fantastic guy. Um, he just hasn't had enough hours in the gym because what he should have been doing is from all of those different foot and shoulder positions, he should have been putting shots in the way because he wasn't making, he was making Dillian miss, but Dillian didn't have to think about anything coming back. So after a while, Dillian was like, A, you can't hurt me. B, you're not going to throw enough punches to irritate me. I'm just going to work on some stuff I've been trying out, which you, is what he did. You picked up on that, didn't you, when, we were, when they were fighting, that he just couldn't hurt Dillian White. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't enough. Uh, I mean, I watched an interview with Dave Allen from after the fight, and I think he was saying that he assumed um, that White would kind of gas out a bit towards the eighth, ninth round, and he didn't uh, in the same manner that... The, uh, Dave Allen had assumed that he would and so that kind of caught him by surprise so he, he stepped it up in the last round didn't he had a, had a proper go at it at that point um, but it, yeah it's too early in his career I think possibly that fight you know White's a little more seasoned he's a little more he's got a few more tricks and he's a bit more of a, a you know an oldened professional perhaps but Dave Allen he'll come again like there's no shame in losing that fight last night there's no harm to his career he's boosted his it's kind of profile within the sport. He's gained a lot of new fans and followers from doing so. Um, so whether or not Sky will ever, you know, match room take him on, I'm not sure. He's got the kind of personality that perhaps Hearn would like because he's a self-promoter. But I think maybe he needs to... He should go back and go to, like, area level. He should go and target the Northern Area Belt um, at heavyweight. And then, you know, you could build something like an Akinlade versus Allen fight for, you know, a few fights down the line. So I think he's fighting in September, on September the 3rd. Again, Dave Allen, he said yesterday. So go back to that area level. Go and kind of achieve those levels and then come back and take on the likes of Sam Sexton for the English as well, which we've been talked about. But there's no shame in what he did last night. It wasn't the best fight in the world. Um, but, you know, it had its moments and it was enjoyable enough. But then you watch, you see, I watched that sort of fight and I was looking at that going, what, what, what are his corner telling him? You know, that's what disappointed me the most is you had, I think you had, you had Junior Wish in the corner, right? Yeah, because Ingle's out with Kel Brook yeah. at the moment. So. But but at no point did, because what I would have said from round one, I would have said, listen, we don't know if he's going to get tired. So let's make sure we tire him. Just keep jabbing him to the body. Keep jabbing him to the body. I mean, jab to the head, right hand to the body. Jab to the head, right hand to the body. Keep testing that body for about four rounds because it's money in the bank if you want someone to tire in round seven you've got to put the work in in round one two and three because there's a there's that cumulative lag because how can we, one of the beautiful things about boxing is this you can roll a headshot and you can take probably 60 percent of the pain out of a headshot with a, you know with clever movement you can't do that with a body shot and the problem with body shots is you use all of you all the muscles in your torso brace for a body shot you know, that's a lot of big muscles and a lot of energy. That's what tires people out. And he didn't do enough of that to Dillian. And, you know, which basically said to Dillian, mate, you can have all the energy you want. You not have, you don't have to dig into your reserves, which means you're clearer in the second half of the fight mentally. And he could just have fun in there. You know, he had his arms outstretched. He was just doing all kinds of things in there, which had Dave Allen really worked the body early on, he wouldn't have been allowed to do. I think we're probably going to discuss it later, aren't we? Around what what does it say about White and where does he go to from there? Because we might as well talk about it now. Yeah, I mean, what? Okay. It perhaps <laughs> to me, like Dillian White has spoken before about he's got these hands of stone, and uh, Dave Allen's clearly got a good chin on him. But White wasn't really hurting him. He wasn't. You know, we've seen White 
uh, with that big left hook where he rocked Joshua. Allen wasn't particularly like rocked at any point. I didn't think he wasn't. Yes, his face was pretty battered by the time he walked out of the ring, but yeah, he he didn't get to Dave Allen as much as perhaps he he should have. And you know, by the end, as you were saying, Terry, it did turn into a little bit of a sparring session, I suppose, and maybe White had kind of taken his foot off the gas. But what does it say about Dillian White, and where does he go from there? He's not world class for me. Like, there's no shame in that, but I think he's. You know, British, European, gatekeeper level. I don't see him necessarily... He's not going to go and clean up the heavyweight division. Well, like I said to you, it's like he's uh, the new Derek Chisora, isn't he? That's what it feels like. He just doesn't seem to... He'll have his days, and then he'll have his off days as well, I suspect. But the thing is, people do Derek Chisora a massive disservice. He, He was a better talent and a better boxer than history will give him credit for. I think before David Hay took him apart, you know, we were all looking at Chisora as, you know, this is a guy who can give everyone trouble. Dillian will be the king of the small heavies. So you'd put Dillian White in today against uh, Thomas Adamek, Andy Ruiz Jr., Eric Molina, all the kind of guys who are around 6'4 and below. I think Dillian gives trouble too. I think he struggles when you get to 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, with the long reach. I don't think he's got the... He hasn't got the slip and slide that you need to bury your head onto someone like Deontay Wilder's chest and work for yeah, it. Yeah, the finesse. Yeah, He hasn't got that. And until he has that, he'll always be a guy who, who can duke it out with the, you know, with the guys around his own size. He'll always be a threat at that level. So if you're going to match him, you'd match him with guys under six foot four. You know, um, who's a Nigerian guy of Poland? Stick him in with him. The Uzo, yeah. wherever his name is. That guy there who people talk about put him in with him you know let's find out who who these who these guys really are because i don't don't want to do see him fight some other brazilian and then we have five fights and we don't realize who dillian white is put him in with a who's the guy that lost to ortiz Uh, yeah yeah brian jennings but i don't even want to see i want to see him be the best in britain I'll start there. I mean, uh, knocking out Fury and Joshua from the argument, but get him in there with the likes of Sexton. You know, Sexton's not the greatest heavyweight in the world, but I'm not convinced of the level that White is at based on last night and based on what we've seen. So I, j- I want to see him actually, you know, claim that British title. And yeah, I know Huey Fury's kind of turned the fight down before because they're mates or whatever, but that'd be a, f- a great fight to see. That's not the plan. L- look at what Eddie Hearn's plan is. Oh, I know. His plan yeah. is, you know, four fights down the line is Joshua, if yeah, not three, it, if not it, two. Well, yeah, it's, it's the rematch because Eddie Hearn sits and he goes, Anthony Joshua, big big fights that can realistically happen. And you just you list them off, you go, hey, Fury, Wilder, Lewis Ortiz, Joseph Parker, big brackets around that one. Now you're like, ah, not many more paydays left. There are no fights that mean anything to the fans. Oh, this Dillian White rematch. It'll be like a rubber match, you know, 1-1 one, one in the amateurs, 1-1 one, one in the pros. Let's see who wins the decider. So Eddie's smart enough to go, I'm going to keep him building until this fight becomes viable because I'm going to run out of options otherwise. I, I, I can definitely see... Joshua missing out on one of the big fights. I don't know if it would be Hay. I don't know if it would be Fury or Wilder. One of those fights will never happen. So you need to have your backup options to guarantee your revenue model. Yeah, no, I'd agree. Um, Dillian White, I'm sure, will go on and get big fights because that's the the matchroom way, isn't it, really? You can 
Um, you can steer somebody's career towards those big fights and make them good money, which is what everybody's in it for at the end of the day. So I say to me, he's not that world level. He's a, a brawler, a good brawler, and he's going to give people a lot of problems. But you know, I, I don't see him. He's not the person that's going to go on and like clean up the heavyweight division. So we saved the best till last, really. Um, the Josh Warrington fight. He's wank. You, you... I can't be bothered. <laughs> I was too drunk to remember it. <laughs> I remember at the time he was like, fucking hell, Josh Warrington is so shit. That, to be fair, he's not shit, is he? He's just, he's not my cup of tea as a boxer. He's clearly, he's got his place. There are people out there, you know, there's fucking 8,000 pissed up Leeds people, whatever, last night that clearly seem to enjoy themselves. He brings them with him. He was getting big fans in before Eddie Hearn. This isn't a matchroom thing. It's a Josh Warrington thing. Fair play to him. He's, not my cup of tea whatsoever. I do not enjoy watching him. Why? It's just <laughs> high work rate, low um, damage. Don't get me wrong, he took Highland out in the end, but Highland was clearly, you know, he came in two and a half pounds over the weight limit. And then, you know, he didn't try and take that off. So he was clearly already drained over the weight limit. And so, like, yes, he stopped Highland, but Highland wasn't in... I'd, I'd suspect Highland probably wasn't in the best shape that he could have been for that fight. He was probably severely weight-drained, I'd suspect. Again, you know, he lost to um, Gary Russell Jr. not that long back. He needs to move up in weight. But Josh Wellington just does nothing for me. I, I don't get the attraction. <laughs> I don't get why all those Leeds people turn out. Those Leeds fans are like the epitome of the casual boxing fan. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But they're the ones that will go along to a Leeds game if there were one on the Saturday afternoon and then they would come and watch your boxing in the evening and make it a whole day out. No issue with that whatsoever. And that should be fully encouraged. It gets people through the door. What I don't get, though, is like it's it's not the fighting style that you would associate with that type of fan coming through the door because it's not exciting in any way whatsoever. And so like, I don't know why or how he attracts all those numbers. It, it baffles me. Are, we, are you bypassing this the same way Martin wanted to, Terry? Here we go. You take a northerner. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You show him the basics of boxing. He's not that good. Doesn't hit that hard. Doesn't really do anything. Can't really defend himself other than to put his hands up. So what do you do? You say, right, you're going to be a 20-round fighter which means we need to talk to an endocrinologist, you know, just to make sure your supplementation is good. <laughs> and that's essentially what you saw yesterday. You saw a guy who, who if you stuck him in the Olympics, would get sent home the very next day. <laughs> just, you know, pleasing a bunch of 8,000 people in Leeds who were probably 60% racist anyway. So I, I don't like Leeds. I don't like Josh Warrington. I just, the guy, just, it's a waste of time. Like, you know, I just, I genuinely don't care about him, don't care about his fans, don't care about him fighting Lee Selby. It's never going to happen. You know, Eddie Hearn's talking about this guy needs to fight for a world title. You're not calling out Lomachenko. You're not calling out Gary Russell Jr., are you? You're calling out Selby, which is why, and I know we're going to go into the topic next. That's why I'm glad Frampton won. Yeah. Because that now means. Al Heyman's in the driving seat if he wants to make that big fight and Eddie Hearn's back out in the backwaters again. He's a fucking Eddie Hearn cash cow. And, like, it's all fair play. As I say, it's built by Warrington. This isn't built by Hearn. Don't, like, don't think it is. Hearn is profiting from it and he's profiting well from it, I'm sure. 
Just a quick side point, actually. Just like the valleys in Wales, man, a lot of these guys up north just take steroids and take EPO. And it's, it's a laugh to them, man. They, they, they don't even do it to box. They do it genuinely so they look good in the nightclub and they can rave from 8 in the evening till 8 in the morning. That's what these guys do. And then every so often they decide that they fancy boxing, they do a bit of white collar, get a following, then they go, I'm going pro. That's what these guys do, and I'm just bored of it. Thanks, Terry. I love editing. So that... that <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> So I uh, just hope you don't get sued because I'm not going to edit that. <laughs> um, right, so where does Josh Warrington go next? No, I'm not going to ask that question. Nobody cares. <laughs> so we'll talk about well, France clearly and to his wedding. <laughs> yeah, his wedding that meant they couldn't fight Lee Selby. Now, I'm not going to go on about that because we've mentioned it before, but it's. I think Hearn said that the Warrington team said it was the wrong time for him to be facing Selby. Like... They're never going to take it. They're never going to do that. What they'll do is they'll get somebody else who's lost a world title fight so they can call them world class on the commentary because they've been in with a world title challenger and they're going to fucking milk that little cock of a cash cow forever. Can we just pick up on this as well? The, 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 <laughs> the Sky Christ, rant central. <laughs> no, no, no. no. The, the, this is less of a rant, but the Sky commentary, was it me or was it just piss poor? Isn't so, it always terrible? Well, they got no, no, the what in. No, so every so often you'll get someone doing colour commentary or even like the, the ringside analysis. I know people don't like Carl Froch, but what I like about Froch is he's not afraid to get technical about what he sees. So if you're, if you're a fan and you don't understand why someone isn't getting hit or why he keeps getting hit, Carl will actually give you some technique, which shows he understands the sport. Is Froch disliked on the, on the broadcasting? No. He, he, he has his detractors. I think but, I've, I've just said he's he's sort of in largely sort of like even, isn't he? I think everybody has their detractors, you know, to an extent. Yeah. But he's, I think he's reasonable enough. I think, yeah, Glenn McCrory coming on doing the commentary was so, poor. Yeah, it didn't do an awful lot for me. Um, and, and it was this this ridiculous sense of, uh, I was like, I don't know if we're watching the same fight here. So so the A side fighters you know they're making out as if they were just un- these dominant yep. monsters and i'm thinking to myself i know you've got to sell you know the the home team's benefits here but come on you know can- at least give the fans something they can take away from this so who do we want on uh on commentary spencer Fearon. no fuck no, that no, no um, fuck um that. <laughs> like don't get me wrong i don't mind spencer Fearon, but i can't <laughs> i can't like you don't like him. no i don't mind spencer Fearon at all i've interviewed him he's a nice enough bloke but the thought of him going on and doing commentary and just talking about how great Spencer Fearon is for a four-hour broadcast would do my nuts. That's great, Spencer. Thanks. What's actually happened there? Yeah. Well, so, Spencer so, says he's brilliant. So. No, so, so for me, I, I like Spencer. I, I'm taking it. I, I like Spencer. He, he knows his stuff. But if you want to stick someone in there, my own view, I put Matt Macklin in there. And and before John Moore Hall starts pulling me up, I am a massive Macklin fan. I think there are a handful of people who have done boxing careers perfectly. And I think he's one of them in the sense that, you know, he got in, overachieved, got out with his faculties and seems to be able to make an income from boxing in retirement. But what I like about him more, more so is just the fact that he gives you an insight into what's happening in the ring. And you no, know, you know, there are people out there who, who are trying to digest this, you know, your, your Sam Khans who, they're watching something, but they're like, I need the detail behind what's going on. And Matt Macklin's the guy that fills in those gaps. I think the biggest issue around that would be his Macklin's Jim Marbella stuff. And would there be any conflict of interest? You know, I doubt Sky give a shit, really. Like, I think they'd have him on. Uh, and yeah, like, 
he'd do for me as long as not Paul Smith as well and like, he dresses well let's not forget those criteria he dresses really well <laughs> <laughs> right let's move on to the Frampton Santa Cruz fight so Frampton wins um, yeah what do we think can I uh, I didn't watch this live because I similar to how a fighter might plan their gas tank over a 12 round fight yeah. I'd planned my night around you know getting up at 4.20 or whatever I think I set my alarm for so I had two potential routes one is drink steadily throughout and stay up for that. And the other one was go hard. Like, go hard through Leeds, fall asleep, and get into, like, an induced coma almost, and then get up for it because I've gone to sleep so early. <laughs> Didn't really work out that way because Andy came around my house. We sat out by the fire with my wife till three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and then I slept through my alarm at 4.20, and I've had to watch extended highlights today. So, Yeah, battered. Uh, I heard the alarm going absolutely crazy and then it went off and I just fell straight into my coma as well um, so right. Terry we rely on, on that you basis, for live Terry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first and foremost absolutely delighted for Carl um, top man really really nice guy I can remember meeting him and having a chat about how he felt about Santa Cruz and he was like I remember him saying don't worry about his work rate he's not going to be able to take the power I have at 126 and you know when you look at someone, you go, okay, yeah, good luck, mate. But he had a look in his eye that said he, I think the whole camp believed it. Barry definitely believed it. Um, Shane said he had the plan. I know the Americans are saying that this was a controversial decision and that really Santa Cruz should have won. But I'm bored of hearing this, this expression, work rate. Santa Cruz should have won because he had the superior work rate. Um, if you watch the fight, every punch Carl Frampton throws, has an effect. And what I mean by that is it stops Santa Cruz doing what he was doing and forces him to do something else. Santa Cruz didn't have that effect on Frampton. Yes, he threw a fair few punches, but he had no real effect on Frampton. And if you look at Frampton in the post-fight interviews, he doesn't look that bad considering he was meant to be fighting one of the best in the division. Um, in terms of technical things to note, I thought Frampton did well off the back foot got sucked into a bit of a, a slugfest every so often, you know, and Shane had to, to pull him back and say, look, stick to what you know. He could have probably made the fight easier on himself with a bit more lateral movement and a bit more, you know, just multi-level attacks or going to the head and to the body. But I thought Carl won. I thought he looked in control, boxed how he normally boxes, um, definitely had Santa Cruz feeling his power. And I think 126 is a better weight for him than 122. A uh, question slightly... On the, say, the decision-making or the uh, the ruling, it, is work rate officially part of any part of the scoring system? It shouldn't be. Um, you know, we always talk about things like lead, style, and defense. Lead is essentially, you know, who's the guy bringing the fight. Um, style, I think that explains itself. And then defense, who's actually protecting themselves. So there are all these elements that should come into it. But ultimately what happens with these guys is they look at the fight and go, based on what I saw, who do I think won the fight? And if, you know, you hear, you hear guys in the commentary saying this all the time, the busier fighter. You know, I don't know if you guys, well, anyone out there who had the Box Nation commentary would have heard the abysmal attempt by Barry Jones to actually try and tell you what was going on in the fight. And, you know, if you listened to him, you'd have thought Frampton was wasting his time even trying to box. But, you know, work rate 
see this, this work rate there's what they call effective aggression all of these things mean nothing ultimately because when you're watching boxing i'm watching i'm going who's imposing their will on this fight and for me frampton was and he was doing it with the jab he was doing it with the right hand he was doing it with the right uppercut and he did it in a style that we know he normally does so he wasn't even put out of his rhythm same number of punches per round same foot cadence you know same defensive chains it was Santa Cruz who looked off his game for the first half of the fight. We, you know, just to let the fans know, sorry. <laughs> Scorecards, 114-114. I think it was 117-111 and 116-112. So, you can't say that was close. You, you'd have to question the 114-114, but, you know, every so often you get those scorecards. That was the same scorecard someone gave Mayweather and Canelo. The, the reason I spoke about the work rate point was because... If work rate was genuinely part of the scoring system and and had to be considered, then surely counterpunching a counterpunching style would be intrinsically flawed just because you're you're never gonna outpunch your opponent if you're a counterpuncher by nature. But you can also do a lot more damage with your counterpunches. So, you know, there are guys who can just sit off the back foot, you know, there's a time when Antonio Tava was really good at that way, you know, it all come off the back foot. And you know, he could rock you. So there's some guys who can punch hard off the back foot. But you're right. If it was about work rate, then you just have a hundred Josh Warringtons running around boring the <laughs> crap out of people. <laughs> Fuck, kill the sport. <laughs> kill me while you're at it. But I think what's what's like massively <laughs> impressive out of it is that Frampton's gone up in weight. It's his first fight at that weight. He's not jumped two weight divisions. He's not done a Kell Brook that's going to go and get fucking publicly slaughtered. He's done it sensibly. He's gone up one weight division after beating an undefeated fighter at Super Bantamweight in Scott Quigg. You know, he's, he's gone out there unified at Super Bantam and then gone up to featherweight and picked up a world title in his first fight. Like, that's massively impressive. Um, so, you know, it must put him in line as one of the fighters of the year, like UK wise. I'd have said it's a little bigger than that. Look at his record. He was the first guy to, to really mess with Kiko Martinez and put him yeah. in his place. Um, then he fought the, the guy over in Texas. Um, yeah, the tall, lanky fella. Yeah. Yes. You know, he, he wasn't afraid to do that. Then he fought Quig. You know, where, where you heard all this nonsense from Eddie Hearn that they don't want the fight, they don't want the fight. He beats him comfortably, breaks his jaw just so he remembers um, who Carl Frampton is. Moves up in weight, fights Santa Cruz, beats him. This is borderline frotch territory in terms of I'll fight anyone because the legacy is about who you fight, not who you, you know, not necessarily who you beat. But as we said earlier, I'm, I'm more happy about this because it kills a Scott Quigg rematch because now you have a guy who's a two-weight world champion, unified in one weight, likely to unify at the new weight because if he does fight Lee Selby, I put Frampton in as favourite. So why would you ever fight Scott Quigg again? And as I've said to people before, you know, I think mentally Scott Quigg's a broken man and I'm excited now because Eddie Hearn's got to rebuild Scott Quigg without all the, the BS. You notice how Eddie Hearn doesn't talk about rebuilding him against Rwanda. Yes. And let's not forget as well, there was uh, there was a brilliant photo somebody put on Twitter the other day. I can't remember who it was. But it was a, uh, <laughs> a screenshot from, I think it was a Daily Mail um, website where it had an interview with Joe Gallagher where he was saying about um, Carl Frampton should leave Shane McGuigan as a coach. 
Uh, like Shane McGuigan isn't good enough to progress him. <laughs> Fuck off, Gallagher. Yeah, but look, look, you know, I said this at the end of last year when people, you know, when I had to give my predictions for 2016, and I said, "Don't be surprised if Shane Gallagher's trainer of the year." Um, Shane McGuigan. Say that again, Shane McGuigan. Don't be surprised if Shane McGuigan is trainer of the year because, you know, as is likely, David Hay swerves Shannon Briggs. Oh, for the record, did, has anyone seen the video of Briggs chasing yeah, David yeah. Hay? <laughs> oh, absolutely hilarious. Um, I don't think David ran from him. I think David just couldn't be bothered at that point. <laughs> but I, I like the spin Shannon Briggs put on it. He's scared. <laughs> but no, so look, you got, you, got, you got David Hay, who might have a big fight before the end of the year. You've got Groves, who's clearly headed in the right direction and likely to be fighting for a world title. Frampton's done what he's done I mean, twice this year, where he's upset the odds. Um, and let, let, let's also congratulate Conrad Cummings on a good performance as well uh, uh, last night, which is fantastic. He's a spiteful puncher, isn't he? He's... Um, I'm, I, th- I, think, I think one of my fighters, Ola Lausa, can take a bit of credit for that because they, they sparred earlier this year and it was just, it was just a war. <laughs> she just, just two very tough men going at each other. And, I think what I liked about it is they looked at each other and went, yeah, you know. There was a Respect. Yeah. And it was just, I was hearing the punches. I was like, oh. Yeah, he's a spiteful puncher, Cummings. I like yeah. him. And he's learning so well. And I, I like how Shane and Barry are working this because they're both quite interventionist. You know, like the, the typical British coaching model is to kind of stand there, let someone have something in a round, then talk to them between rounds. You know, unlike the Americans. The Americans will stop the sparring right there and go, what the hell are you doing? get back in there and show me something different. It was, we don't do that here, which means that we don't get enough of that quality coaching. Whereas they'll do that. They'll intervene a lot. They're very detail-oriented. Uh, it's it's an impressive operation they're slowly building over at McGuigan's gym. Right, still a couple more bits to talk about. Uh, Donis Stevenson we're going to chat about. But what I wanted to do, just to break it up slightly, was ask you both a question each. Uh, but just before I do, you need to call heads or tails mine. Tails. Always tails. Right, right, tails. Simple. Okay, you can answer answer the first question then, which is, just I haven't prepped you for this, so just to make the listeners nope. aware. Well, hold on, wait, wait, stop, stop. Why did you make him toss the coin if you're just going to decide anyway? Uh, no, well, <laughs> all right. Arbitrarily hand it out. Yeah, that's, that's true. Okay, right. In that case, you've won the toss, you can choose. I want the top three, in your opinion, fights or fighters of the year, and whatever you don't answer, Terry will answer. Fights and or fighters. Um, fights or fighters. I mean, I'm assuming there'll be some. There'll be some fighters in there that might not necessarily not necessarily be in the best fights that you've seen. Yeah, so I mean, Carl Frampton would have to be like in the top three fighters of the year if I'm interpreting this correctly. Stop me if I'm not. No, go for it. If you can do fighters, then. Um, I mean, Tyson Fury would be another one. Uh, who else would you say? I don't know really. Uh, Jamie McDonnell. He's had a good year. The two wins over Kamada out in America. Fantastic wins. Um, you know, he's he's under the radar as a matchroom fighter because, well, I don't know why really. But isn't he a Heyman fighter? Jamie McDonald, no, he's a Hearn fighter. Uh, he's fought on, he, like Ricky Burns, got shipped over there. Um, oh, okay, cool. Because I was like, you fought Kameda twice in the States. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Sure, I'm sure that's Heyman money. Oh, yeah, no, it is. Um, I think he was meant to lose. Like, it, it, the intention was that he was going to lose it, but he won both, um, which is why it's so impressive. You know, Tony Bellew, you can put in there as a fighter of the year. Don't get me wrong, 
I'm not a fan of the man, but to move up a weight division and then beat, you know, somebody who was deemed a, a credible fighter um, before. Uh, in terms of fighter... Can I, can I ask just quickly, you nah. said Tyson Fury, He there'll be people out there thinking, well, he's only had that one fight. Why, why you know, I know, realise that he's won those belts, but like someone, you didn't mention Anthony Joshua and, that, and I think that will come into people's head when you mention... Anthony whoa, Joshua whoa, whoa, can whoa. fuck off. Whoa, 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 whoa. F- Fury... <laughs> Fury kicked the chestboard in the air. <laughs> I really, I know. Just I know. Wa- walked into the heavyweight division, looked around, said, I know I haven't <laughs> fought anyone, and just booted the chessboard up in the air. <laughs> caught both queens, both kings, and all the castles, and went, I have all the pieces now. You yeah. guys squabble over the Anthony rest. Joshua wouldn't be a world champion if it wasn't for Tyson Fury. Like, Make no mistake about that. Mm, um, you know, Tyson Fury, yes, there's all the other stuff that goes around it, but... You know, that fight with Klitschko was a tremendous out, uh, tremendous outing for him. You know, everybody wants to see him more active. Whatever the reason for him not being active, injury or these allegations around the drug, I, I don't know. But everyone wants to see him be. The sample out. came back negative. Yeah, he said he's going to sue. Because uh, apparently they already knew that before the story came out. Yeah, apparently he's going to sue whoever it was that published the story. But there you go. Um, let, let, let's see him out. But. In terms of like the fights that I've been there for live, like it was one that probably fuck all people will really know about it, but there was a Southern Area um, lightweight title fight between Floyd Moore and Ben Day at York Hall, which was a fantastic fight. Um, you sent you sent some video footage of that, didn't you? That fight? Yeah, probably. Like, I loved that fight. Um, you know, it was Ben Day coming down in weight, and like Floyd Moore. He's got a very comfortable, you know, one one style. I I loved watching that fight. That was one of my uh, my highlights of the boxing year. Terry's not a big uh, a big fan of that by the looks of it. Were you there, Terry? Swaying around, just like mad. Flowering so, the wind. So I, I was meant to be there because a girl that I went to school with is actually cousins with Floyd Moore. Yeah, and so she randomly, you know, we're friends on Facebook. She sees up a lot of boxing and stuff, and she's like, "Do you know my cousin?" And I was like, "Who's your cousin?" She's like, "Floyd Moore." I'm going down to watch his fight if you fancy it. Um, calendars didn't align, obviously, so didn't get to see it. But Martin knows me well enough to know I'm quite anti a lot of the small hall game. Um, I think it's, I just think it's mugs fighting mugs a lot of the time. And I'm not one of these guys that buys into the myth that, oh, if you step through the ropes, mate, you got a lot of bottle. I'm just like, mate, once you get used to getting punched around the face, it's not that big a deal anymore. But you know, I guess it has its place. Let me not say too much about it. I'll start getting phone calls from Mickey Helliot going, give me my followers back. <laughs> um, right, so answer your, answer your, I mean, it's the, the, not only was the coin toss completely pointless, but... <laughs> I don't know the question was as well, because <laughs> I'm bugging out. Yeah, so um, give us your take on that then, uh, Terry. Top three fighters and top three fights, the same Whatever. Do they have to be British fighters? Do whatever you want, mate. Uh, there's no, there's no, I mean, I no rules. Old, so for no me... <laughs> they got broken okay. anyway. <laughs> so so for me, I have a feeling it's going to be a very DMV-focused, very Barry Hunter, headbangers-focused list on this one. Number one, Robert Easter Jr. I think Robert Easter Jr. has announced himself as the biggest threat at lightweight. Maybe not the best lightweight just yet, but the biggest threat. Uh, 5'11", power in both hands, seems to have a boxing brain about him. You know, the win over Argenis Mendes and the way he did it is a statement. You know, so, super impressed with him. Let's see what he goes on to do against Richard Comey. If he does that, he's fighting for a title at some point. That is a world title fight. Is that what? Oh, they, there you go. So, my pick's correct then. Fantastic. And then, second one's a bit sentimental. So, I'm going to go with Gerald 
Tucker Sr. Um, no one knows who Gerald Tucker is. I know him because he was a boxing coach in, in, in Ohio for a while. You know, part of the Ohio Boxing Miracle, which has seen all these guys like Broner and God knows who else come through. He was an alternate in the 1996 Olympics, so he was in the same squad as Mayweather. He didn't get to box in the Olympics, but he's a contemporary of Floyd Mayweather, multiple times Golden Glove champion, decides to come out of retirement at the request of Adrian Broner this year at the age of 40. Comes up, has two reasonably challenging fights, wins both of them, you know, clearly committed now to, to boxing more, gives a lot to, to the local community, so he's got a little foundation if kids want to pursue boxing, you know, he's got a GoFundMe page, they make money and they fund kids. So for me, that's an impressive story just because, you know, he thought he still had it. He wanted to test himself and he's done that. So congratulations to him. And then I'm going to put Joshua in there as my top, as my oh, third boxer. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. We're not having Conflict. that. And, 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 and I'll tell you why. <laughs> because admittedly, he bought he, a lovely body. He bought, no, well. <laughs> he bought the belt, which is fair enough. But let's not forget the load this guy carries. You know, out, outside what? outside of boxing, the <laughs> that why he wears his big shorts. <laughs> the promo, the promo work he has to do, all the stuff. He's basically the flagship. No, 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 can't you jump in there? Doesn't have to. He chooses to. If he wanted to make less money, he wouldn't have to do that. Uh, he's too humble. That's a problem. Exactly, no, no, but but you know we've never said to anyone else be less ambitious. So he he wants to be the, the you know the best fighter in his weight class in the world. Fair enough. But what what he's done is he's created something which means everyone else can eat as well. So if you're on a Joshua card, your money's good. If you're fighting Joshua, your money's good. And as Martin said earlier, this is ultimately a living for these guys. So anything that encourages people to make more money, I'm in favor of. And secondly, of equal importance is. You know, John's listening to this and I couldn't say, David, hey, <laughs> if we're being honest. But no, no, being serious, he's done that. And also what he's shown is he's shown the formula. Look, this is how you build a boxer. This is how you build yourself as a boxer. And, you know, hopefully that will enable guys like O'Hara Davis, Anthony Yard, Craig Richards, all these guys will follow the template and they'll make money in this game too. Okay, let's move on then to... Um well, move on and go backwards to the Donna Stevenson fight on Friday night. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I I know nothing about this, so uh, fill me in. Uh, I didn't really watch it. I've seen the the highlights. I've seen uh, Donna Stevenson bullying a man that shouldn't have been in with him. Next, <laughs> it was a good fight. I I I thoroughly enjoyed that fight. Um, Donna Stevenson has nowhere to go other than the Kovalev Ward winner. So yeah. everyone he fights is kind of killing time. You could put Cleverly in there. It's a killing time fight. Bremer, it's a killing time fight. Who does that really leave for him to fight? There's not many options. You know, you you could you could recycle Chad Dawson, but you know you're only going to induce brain injury in Chad Dawson. <laughs> why, why the fight was important was we wanted to see what what Adonis Stevenson could do other than throw the jab and the powerful straight left, which he loves to throw. And he was, he was, he was able, I don't know if it was Tom Williams Jr. Don't quote me on the name of the opponent. I've forgotten it at the moment. But, you know, he had an opponent who was tall, rangy, really wanted to, you know, really wanted to test him, felt Stevenson's power, then decided to box on the inside, which Stevenson matched him for. And that's a good sign for whoever he goes on to fight afterwards because 
I'd like to see him have, as Americans say, more wrinkles, you know, in his game. So if he can box on the inside like he did and the stoppage was fantastic. Oh, it was a cracking knockout. And and that's when you realise he's still a factor. Even at 38, he's still a factor at light heavy because if he can box on the inside, bob and weave like he was doing in the fight there, he's a problem to Kovalev and Ward. So I think that was a good fight to remind us that there's more to the light heavyweight division than just Ward and Kovalev. Yeah, I I'm just, I don't know. Unless he's fight unless one of those three are fighting each other, that division doesn't do an awful lot for me. Andre Ward's got a fight coming up. I don't care. Like those three need to in some way have like a super three, do you know what I mean? Like all fight each other in some way because that division's like it's not very exciting outside of those three. And I can't get a fucking hard on about watching Adonis Stevenson beat up another man. But in it's that about way. to be though, because isn't DeGail moving up to one seven five? I dunno. But he, yeah, maybe he will. But after the, after Badu Jack, he'll move up to one seven five. Yeah, maybe. But uh, yeah, that's four names then. But so aside from that, I don't want to see you know Kovalev beating Chilemba the other week. I didn't care, and like I'm struggling to give a fuck about any of it unless those lot you know fight each other. And the, the, you know unless they do that, the light heavyweight division. Yeah, you know, we get the announcement cleverly. Bramer's coming up. Don't give a fuck. Like do not care. It's from make believe belt. Get the big names fighting each other, or that division's just shit. Okay, let's move on to what happened on Friday night. So we got um, an unlicensed boxing event down at Bethnal Green, uh, and somebody gets stabbed. Uh, you want to fill in the details, Terry, Martin? Um, high level, unlicensed show organised on the Friday. It kicks off in York Hall itself. Security tries to then manage the situation by getting everyone out. The fight clearly spills out into the street um, and then follows the trail. If anyone knows the walk from York Hall to Bethnal Green Station, you'll know what I'm talking about when I say the fight just carried on from York Hall all the way to Bethnal Green. Um, young man in his 30s gets stabbed. Um, Faisal, if I remember correctly. Yeah, was. Um, which basically turns York Hall into a murder scene and Mickey Hellett's show gets cancelled. Um, and I know Martin will have his views as well, but what really concerns me the most is you know, it's the lack of control that the British Boxing Board of Control have over boxing. And maybe we need legislation that says you cannot have an event unless it's sanctioned by the British Board as a professional show or by England Boxing as an amateur show. Problem is, I mean, that that just drives it underground, doesn't it? Like, at the moment, we know about it because it's at York Hall. Um, and, you know, it, it was a show that, unlicensed for people that don't really know the term, means... It's, it looks and feels like a boxing show. The talent, you know, possibly doesn't, but, um, it looks and feels like a boxing show, but it's not sanctioned by the British Boxing Board of Control, who sanction, you know, legitimate professional boxing. Uh, what implications does that have? So there aren't the rules and regulations around, um, well, I mean, they'll have their own rules and regulations for safety and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but the security, for instance, uh, you know, Terry can probably fill us in a little bit more about this kind of stuff, but, there are there will be um certain ratios around how many staff you have to have work in the place by the british board um for how many fans are in um there will be security checks all this kind of stuff terry you know we were speaking about a while back but um when you go into york hall anyone that's ever been there if you go in through the front door of york hall with your ticket you get stopped and there's a table and they go through your pockets and your bags and all that stuff will be dictated by the british boxing board of control this wasn't a British Boxing Board of Control event. 
this was just an event at York Hall. Um, so you know, if you if you make this completely unregulated and say you can't do it anymore, you know, you've already got the fucking Maltese boxing clowns, whatever they're called, the NBC that. They're sanctioning fights, so you know they've got their own rules, and then there's this unlicensed. So it's completely fragmented, and and this has been allowed to happen. And what worries me the most is you can have guys boxing with detached retinas, guys boxing with metal plates in their heads. You know, it's not stringent. And what happens is when the, when the unlicensed game goes tits up, it reflects badly on the pro game, and then all the anti-boxing lobby come out and attack what is essentially a safe sport. You know, we saw with the Nick Blackwell thing, British boxing, when licensed, is safer than, to be honest, playing rugby. Yeah, I mean, um, I had a conversation, I won't mention the person's name, but somebody heavily involved in the boxing industry. We were talking about the Maltese boxing uh, people bringing over fighters. So their argument is that they have the same uh, medical requirements, if not more so, than the British Boxing Board of Control quite how you can justify that when you allow Robin Deakin to step into a ring still I don't know uh, I know Robin I, I speak with Robin when I see him and he, he's a nice enough bloke but he shouldn't be boxing in my view um, but you know they have their own medical procedures and they allow people to fight that haven't been passed by the British Boxing Board but they also have their own very strict ones so they have all the brain scans they have all that stuff filed for their fighters what I've been told that <laughs> The checks that are done for the away fighters, so the people they're bringing over um, from foreign countries, is next to fuck all. And so, like, all it's going to take is for somebody, as Terry says, about people with detached retinas, might have you. You know, this is professional boxing under the Maltese Boxing Commission in Britain. So if somebody dies in the ring there because their medicals haven't been checked from overseas... You know, all you're going to get is the headline "Boxer dies in the ring." It's not going to be "Boxer dies in the ring" under the Maltese Boxing Commission alias. It's just going to be British boxing, even though the British Boxing Board of Control will have no uh, input into that show, into that fight, into that fight taking place. You know, if that happens one day, nobody's going to make the distinction between a Maltese boxing show and a British Boxing Board of Control show or an unlicensed boxing. It, they all fall under the same sporting banner. And there's a you know there's heavy risks involved in all of it as you said rightly about the the Nick Blackwell stuff and Chris Eubank are those same safety measures you know is there an anaesthetist on hand at all times at an unlicensed show I'm going to take a punt no <laughs> and, and here's the thing about the unlicensed game until we legislate and we actually define what is permissible as professional and amateur boxing you're going to get this sort of nonsense and I know. Martin, the argument of you'll drive it underground. I think it'll be very hard to drive it underground because what venue is going to say, yeah, I'll do an unlicensed show and run the risk of losing my license? Oh, you get fucking all these dodgy people down the East End or whatever. You'll have a warehouse with it on. You don't need a venue. But you know what? You'll warehouse a few cans. But you'd kill the sport at that point because it's like, well, we're not making the money. Because if you look at it now, you can get an unlicensed show in your call. Jeez. You know? How more mainstream do you get than that? You know, you couldn't fill a warehouse of the people you could fill your hall with. I think we need to do something to actually say, you know what, let's regulate who can don the pair of, uh, pair of gloves. We need to do that because, and it's probably a point we need to discuss further on in the podcast, you know, there's a lot of tension in the amateur game around this very same thing as well. And it's a massive issue this year that needs to be resolved one way or the other. What I've always found difficult to comprehend with boxing is this 
Um, whilst you've got very... Well, it's, it's, it, there's lots of grey areas in boxing, whether that's between governing bodies, even like the questioning of who's a champion or whatever. When you get right the way down to sort of that sort of level you're talking about now, um, what I find... What I find odd is there seems to be very little definition between two blokes having a fight in a street who could... Like, you take two blokes fighting in a street, and that's an illegal fight that could get broken up. Someone could, you know, and people can get prosecuted. Whilst they're fighting, if someone erects a building around them and then two blokes shake hands outside that building and say yes this is you know i'm the boxing association of this building or whatever it seems it seems so easy to regulate to sorry like faux official status for these for what is is potentially a death sport this just seems to be like how do people how is this not regulated more by the government let alone boxing associations why is it not the government that's stepping in consent stopping people from putting their lives at risk consent you know the government will say we haven't got time to be messing around with two men that want to jump in a ring and punch each other's heads in If, if if they sign the paperwork that says we're not responsible we'll leave them to it that's the problem. There seems to be more. I, I guarantee there's more. Pe- there's more regulation around dog fighting than there is boxing. Uh, you know, that's what it seems to whoa, be. Whoa. And look what's happened to dog fighting. Not only has it been decimated. <laughs> not only has it been de- sky dogs. <laughs> not, not only has it been decimated, but it's also just socially unacceptable. Like you know, you you can't you can't put on Tinder. I'm a dog fighter. <laughs> 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 I've tried it, but yeah. <laughs> okay, right. Let's move on to the amateur scene. Thing. Um, votes and whatnot have taken place. Um, still taking place. Right, still taking place. Give us an update as to the stat, the state of the amateur amateur game. Then, which should be nice and quick and simple. <laughs> okay, overview. Currently, you know, we have England boxing. In England, we have England Boxing, the Welsh and the Scots all have their own governing bodies as well. And they regulate amateur boxing in their respective countries. They organise tournaments and sanction them. They, you know, they register the clubs. They're basically your authority to be an amateur boxing club. It's been that way since God knows when. You know, we're all used to it. But England Boxing is essentially a federation. So you've got London Amateur Boxing Association, Eastern Counties, you know, Southern Counties, you've got the Northwest. So, so you know, you've got your regional governing bodies and, you know, you delegate the day-to-day administration to those guys. Which makes life easier because it means that if there's a question, for example, if I'm in London and I have a question, I can pop over to the London ABA office or if I need to hand a form in, you know, quick journey, drop it off. It's nice and handy and convenient. So, that's that's what we're all used to. Now this changed because what England boxing want is to control things centrally. So they they want to take the power away from the regional governing bodies and say, you know, we're in charge now. You pay us the money. You know, all the registration is done through us. And what this has done is it's the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't think this is the source of the debate, but a lot of people have been disaffected with England boxing for a while. They're things, judging, officiating. The, the perception that things are a bit clicky in England boxing. So if you're on the outside of that group, you don't get the breaks and you don't get the opportunities. 
Yeah. And this is important because if you want your kids to box at GB level, you know, you have to play the politics. So there are coaches and clubs who are saying to themselves, why do we need this? We're, we're never going to get the breaks or the opportunities. We may as well do our own thing. And, you know, the different regions are having the, the votes now to say, do we stay in England boxing or stay away? And it's splitting clubs because there's a handful of coaches in this country, pro or amateur, who are any good. Yeah, there are. Um, you know, we give people like Peter Fury a hard time, but Fury in the pro game is a really good one. Um, older Charlie Rumble down at Rumble's Boxing Academy is another guy. These guys are fantastic men, but there's a handful of them. And, you know, guys like me who are up and coming coaches, you know, my generation, the Mark Rygates at Fitzroy Lodge, Billy Rumble over at Eastern Boxing Club, these sorts of guys, what we're looking at, we're looking at the guys who are doing the pro stuff and the white collar stuff. And we're saying we're better coaches than them because of what we've delivered. Our CVs speak for themselves, but we can't jump into those spaces because of the regulations, because then technically we're not amateur anymore. So we, as a coach, I can't do the corner if I'm working with pros. But then there are pros who might say, Terry, I need you for something. So there's that inherent frustration where it's like, well, just free us up to do what we need to do. There's also the issue of, you know, how do you make it fairer to the clubs? You know, can we sort the weight classes out? What do we do about shows? And so there are all of these tensions and all the different regions are now voting whether to stay in or out. Um, I think the votes will be happening around this time within the next 10 days or so. The London one is on the 7th of August. So if you're part of a London boxing club, get down there, let your views be heard. You know, London's pretty split. Um, I'd say it's 60-40 in favour of aligning with England boxing, but that could change based on a couple of key votes. But if you lose London and you lose the Eastern Counties, what you essentially lose is the bulk of British amateur talent in terms of guys who go on to do <clears> things in the pros and also the bulk of your ticket sellers. To clarify this, because I don't know, um, so if London voted out, but the whole of the England... No, all the regions. So if London votes out, but the whole of the regions come back as staying in, does London then... Like, are you allowed to pick your own uh, in or out? Or is it everybody's consensus is what's going to happen? So I think the view will generally be, you know, vote. Are we aligning with England Boxing or not? So there'll be a vote for that. And then the clubs will then have the choice. You can register with England Boxing if you choose to. Or you can be part of this new thing that they're proposing. But the problem with the new breakaway faction is they haven't really defined what it is. So we don't know what the vision is. There are some things they want to do, which I agree with. So they want to bring back the 86 kilogram weight class. So you don't just go from 81 to 91, which was causing all number of problems because look, at 91 kilograms, you've either got a 100 kilo lad who's boiled down or a guy who's lazy at 81 and has just ballooned up to 91. Two different physiques completely. Whereas at 86, you know, you've got a bit of a halfway house, you know, bringing the weights back from 60 to 64 to 67, up to 71 and 75. All of these things, just from a safety perspective, make all the difference. So fully agree with that. But they haven't resolved the conundrum of what tournaments would there be? How would we get into GB and these sorts of things? I think the problem is we all know things need to change, but no one seems to know what that change looks like and no one seems to have the heart to actually bring it through. I have a question. Um, if if a club is allowed to choose its own destiny, what's the purpose of having a vote then? 
Like, there's, like, I th- it's kind of what you were saying, wasn't it? If unless the club is mandated to follow the rules of the vote, what's the point of having one? Well, because if you look at it organisationally, England boxing still it still has the same structure. So what they then have to do is they'd have to kick out the London ABA and go, we're going to put our own in there and then see who signs up to that. Right, okay. So there is consequences if they don't follow the vote. Well, well, so, so, well the real consequences. So if you decide to step out of England boxing, you can't do the ABA. So you can't do the national championships. You can't do the school boards. You can't do the juniors. You can't do the novices. You can't do the Haringey Box Cup. You can't do the Celtic Box Cup. You probably can't do the, the Nordic Box Cups in Denmark, Sweden and Norway. There are real consequences, and your guys can't box for GB. But let's then pause and go, what proportion of guys that walk in the gym end up doing any of that? And it's normally about 4 to 5% tops, right? So 95% of boxers have no real interaction with England boxing. You could just organize bouts between yourselves. And this is the reality of what we're facing here. Is that it, if in any given year I don't have any talented fighters who I think could go all the way, why do I care about GB representation? I don't. Okay. Right. Let's move on to listeners' questions. And this week we have a lot from Sam Khan. So thank you very much, Sam. At Blessed Work on Twitter. And a first question, slash point, is if federation rankings are not an indication of ability or skill, then the big mandated fights just replicate all of the mismatches that are annoying the fans. And this all boils down to the rankings in which they place fighters and what fights that leads to, right? Yeah, so each, um, you know, the WBA, the WBC, the IBF, etc., WBA, they have their own top 15 rankings. So the job of a promoter is to, you know, the top-level promoters are there to lobby and politic their fighter into those top 15s, and they've got to go away and argue slash pay their way to getting a fighter into that top 15. So... Yeah, I mean, I suppose the question would be, do you really want a top 15 of fighters that are, you know, fairly talented, but you don't really know anything about? Or, you know, yes, they'll get their name up there in time. Or do you want it so that David Hay can come back and buy his way into the top 15? You know, that's going to make more money. That's what, you know, all of these bodies take a sanctioning fee out of all of the fights. So, yeah, it is corrupt. And I'm sure there are backhanded payments all over the place to, you know, buy your way into those rankings. It's how fucking Liam Smith has managed to find all of his opponents so far with his world title. Uh, obviously different now that you've got Canelo. But, you know, every Frank Warren world title holder, you know, Flanagan Farner, brilliant fight. How the fuck was Farner in that top 15? Nobody knows. It was a joke. Um, so, I mean, even to politic your way to the very top and then also to help politic somebody else into that top 15 so you can handpick them. It's just what it is. Like... Yeah, is it right? No, you know, can it be fixed? Probably not, because there's so much money involved. It's almost like the rankings uh, are almost been something that they've a veneer that's been applied later to ch- to sort of like feign authenticity of them, isn't it? Yeah. And in a already corrupt and political organisational yeah. sport. So basically, draw your list of the top fifteen fighters that you want to see or that you think can be made. And then put a name to it, such as the IBF or the WBC or the WBA, and that's what you do. But the problem is, people, fans look at these things like a league. Look at it as a queue. That's what rankings are. Rankings are essentially a queue. And what happens is there's a geographical leaning. So the WBC will always favor Mexican slash Latino fighters. 
um, that's why Golden Boy have a really good relationship with the WBC because that's their target market, probably the biggest boxing buying sec- segment in the market. So WBC gets great sanctioning fees. Um, you know, when Canelo had their belt, they were happy. When Mayweather had their belt, they were happy. Now that Golovkin's got their belt, they're happy too. You've got the WBA, who I think are Venezuela-based. Uh, Panama. Okay. And they have an equal leaning towards, you know, the Latin American market. So you'll tend to find that's the way things go that way. The IBF are based out of New Jersey. So they have a more American leaning. You, they, almost, they call it the Al Heyman governing body. So Heyman loves the IBF belts. Um, WBO European base, so you that's not a surprise. Frank Warren's bedroom, essentially. Well, so Warren's yeah, bedroom organization. Yeah, so, <laughs> so he's the guy who yeah. brought the WBO to to the you know over the top in terms of legitimacy. So what ends up happening is Heyman will lobby for his guys to be high up in the W in the IBF rankings. So it's no surprise that guys he's worked with, um, Frampton, Selby, DeGale, all IBF champions. At various points, David Hay, he's worked with him before. Sky high in the IBF rankings now. So, you know, the the main promoters have their their own leverage. Um, Warren obviously has leverage with the WBO. Um, De La Hoya with the WBC, and that leaves Eddie Hearn to normally kind of flit around at the margins of all the governing bodies I trying to sneak these guys the in. the IBF, I think. Is, I've done a piece on this, looking into all of their uh, last five years' worth of title fights. The IBF is the biggest percentage. It's not. Don't get me wrong, it's not like 80%. It's not fucking Frank Warren levels of corruption. <laughs> but um, yeah, certainly I think the IBF is his favoured route. And, and so, so what you end up having is a cue. doesn't mean that you get these mismatches Yes and no, because ultimately all the people who should fight each other are somewhere on the ranking. So that you either got to fight them as a mandatory or fight them as a unification. You know, you're never going to get all the fights you want to see because, you know, the possible permutations are too many. You know, bearing in mind that, you know, fighters now can only fight twice a year. You know, God knows when that rule came in. But fighters can only fight twice a year, which limits the options, you know, in the life of a career. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb and best describe the fight of Brook versus Golovkin as the closest thing you'll see to a public execution. Um, and and therefore, I'm going to guess that Golovkin comes out of it relatively unscathed, maybe even just completely unscathed. That might mean that the most popular view... I'm, I appreciate you, you two probably will uh, agree. But anyway, the point is, Everyone is beatable, Sam Khan asks. So beyond GGG Brook, which is, in my mind, an irrelevance anyway, what are Golovkin's weaknesses? Um, I don't know, really. It's a, it's a, good, a tough question to answer. We haven't seen him have it put on him. Um, you know, He's clearly got a good chin. He's taken punches. He's taken big punches. Nobody's really gone out there. I think that's why people were perhaps so heartbroken about Chris Eubank not taking the fight because Chris Eubank you know would at least go out there and throw his fast hands um you know they're not the heaviest hands in the world but at least he'd pressure Golovkin and go out and really work him we haven't really seen that too much of Golovkin so it's difficult to pick a weakness I suppose Terry were you uh were you going with um he's there to be hit um did he Golovkin's not elusive um he's there to be hit the challenge is, can you jab faster than Golovkin can jab? 
and can you jab harder than Golovkin can jab? Um, I always look at Golovkin and say, I'd love to have seen him against a guy like Marvin Hagler, a guy who can, you know, a guy who was quick with his punches and also had the power, you know, a, you know, these fantasy matchups you can think of, you know, you imagine Golovkin fighting a John Mugabe, a guy with legitimate power in both hands. What would, you know, would that force Golovkin to box a bit more defensively? And if so, would it take away most of his threat? I'd expect so. But if you're looking at it from a Dominic Ingle perspective and you're training Kel Brook, you want to get your jab in first. You want to match his single jab with your double jab. You want to jab to the body. You know, he's not very lateral, so you can roll out to the sides. I think some clever pivots. There are all, th- all these things you can do, but I have a feeling Golovkin has an answer for all of them. You don't fight 400 times as an amateur yep. <clears throat> and not have the answer. So there are ways to get at him, but if you don't have a deterrent, and what I mean by that is either a 10 out of 10 defense or 10 out of 10 power, you're in for a long night because he seems to have 10 out of 10 power. Okay, good answers. Thank you, guys. Uh, right, let's move on. I'm going to slightly rephrase this question from Sam Khan. And what she asks is, if you're going to be a promoter or a manager, do you have an advantage of being an ex-boxer yourself? Go on, Terry. Sam already knows the answer to this, just for the record. My own view is, no, of course not. Completely different skill sets. You can't compare the two, because as a boxer, singular focus, very selfish, you're only really thinking about one objective. As a promoter, you have to think about the big picture at all times. Like Every decision has consequences going forward. So I'd say you need a good grasp of many things and none of them involve fighting really because as a promoter, you're really thinking about money. As a manager, you're thinking about money and fighter welfare. So different skill sets. In the same way, by analogy, I use coaching. It's very hard to go from being a coach to then sparring with people in the ring because what you've learned as a coach is you're quite selfless and you're, you almost, you almost care too much about the other person. And also you're think, you're looking at everything you shouldn't be looking at. Whereas when you're fighting, you're quite singular. You know, you focus on one thing and one thing only. And it's the same, you know, look, Al Heyman's the guy that's making the most money in boxing. He came from a music background. What were his strengths? He already understood how to take human commodities and monetize them make sure the contracts are straight make sure their revenue streams are broadened give them the opportunities so he just translated something that worked in one industry into boxing and in the process modernized the sport of boxing so he was a you know good example same contrast oscar de la hoya golden boy hasn't been the same since richard schaefer left richard schaefer wasn't a boxing guy you know he's a businessman so i think if you look at it you need to understand, A, you need to understand just the, the belts and braces of boxing, the fundamental, the, let's rephrase that, of business, the fundamentals of that. Have an empathy for what boxing is and the strains it puts on a fighter. But also, you need to be able to see that bigger picture. How do I turn my fighter into a revenue-generating commodity? And I actually think boxing would limit you in your ability to do that. Yeah. Uh, I think you know a promoter is ultimately a businessman. I think nails uh, Terry's nailed it. Really, is uh, you know a promoter is a businessman uh, who's there to make money out of them. So 
you don't need to have necessarily been it's not to say that it's a disadvantage i mean perhaps the biggest advantage is that you would come into it with a name already you know if you were a big name boxer and you turned into a promoter you've already got that uh, market value already to your name and you can carry over fans and whatever it's not necessarily to say it's a disadvantage but it's not to say also that it's an advantage i mean the management side of it the manager is there to try and steer the career so it's interesting watching dave allen do an interview with um, ifl tv after the the dillian white fight and his manager is steffi bull who was saying um you know he wouldn't have personally chosen for dave allen to take that fight last night because he would have allowed him more growing fights you know learn more lessons don't take that fight 10 fights into your career but Dave Allen is a fighting man and wanted to take that fight. You know, he'd heard enough of Dillian White's this and Dillian White's that. He just wanted to go in and test himself. So the manager has more of an interest in looking after the welfare and the growth of the fighter and, you know, trying to protect their record, ultimately. Um, you don't need to have been a, a boxer for that. Perhaps being a boxer, the advantage to that side of it is that you know the risks that are inherent with the sport and who you should perhaps try and avoid. Okay, last question. This is from David McGinley at David McGinley eighty nine on Twitter. Thank you very much, David. Man, you gotta look after us if we ever come out to New York. <laughs> like, yeah. Four weeks. Our listeners are accommodating wonderful individuals, so it's almost like well, we we'll confirm to... that when they cook us dinner and give us a bed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we are, slightly off topic, but something from that my mates debate: who is the better prospect? Price, Huey Fury, or, and I'm assuming that's Dillian White, but um, the, the immediate thought to my mind, and I think we kind of spoke about this just before the pod, which was, can Price still be classified as a prospect? But discuss. Even if you were going to put him in that category, he's not a very good one, um, would be my view. You know, Yes, he's got that big, you know, he can punch hard, but yeah, he's lost and those losses were to drug cheats, but ultimately... I think Tyson Fury put it very well that you can take all the PEDs in the world. Like, if you can't take a punch, you can't take a punch. And, like, the amount of PEDs Tony Thompson may have taken, um, or the other geezer that beat him that got done for, I can't remember his name. Tipa. Sorry? Urkan Tipa. Urkan Tipa, yeah, that's him. Um, you know, Fury's view is if it was me that was in the ring with Urkan Tepper, he wouldn't have been able to land that punch on me on the first place. So those amount of PEDs are irrelevant. Like he's just not that good. I think out of the three of them, Huey Fury, uh, he's a difficult one to gauge because he's not really been in with anybody that you can. He hasn't had an opponent that you can rank against somebody else that that is that meaningful. But you know, he's he's out of the Fury family. The Fury family all trained by Peter. If he's made of the same grit and determination and skill set ultimately as Tyson, then you probably would have to put him at the top of that list. It seems to me the only fighter out of the three of them that, like you say, hasn't already been shown up somehow. Like I, don't, I, I accept the fact that Dillian White's only fought <clears throat> Andy Joshua in that regard, but he hasn't, like I say, it's just, it, there is still potential for him. White you know? has lost to somebody who you could argue <laughs> is world class. Um, so you'll give him that. I don't mind that so much. Price has lost to people who aren't world class, so I don't see how you could even rank him. You know, if you're going to call him a prospect, I don't think he's very good. I'd like to see Huey Fury stepped up, but he, whether it's they can't get the right fights for him or he's not taking the right fights, I, I don't know. Terry, Huey Fury for me. Um, if what Peter's saying is true, that they've cured the the poisonous acne, um, then. Let's see what he can do when he's fully fit. 
be interesting to see what difference that makes. Is he more powerful? Because if he is, and if he's if he even adds thirty percent to what he has, then he's light years ahead of someone like a Dillian White. Because you look at Huey Fury and you see a guy who's clearly fought his whole life, so he has good ring sense, and I like that. He has a good jab. He understands what he needs to do to control a fight. You know, even if he doesn't feel that he can dominate a guy, he knows how to control the fight and make sure that it goes in his direction. Um, you know, it doesn't hurt you to spar Tyson Fury on a regular basis either. So I think he is because he's still only 21, if I'm correct. So you can't even start to judge him till he gets about 24. Okay, right, let's move on. Last point on the agenda. We have argue the inarguable. Okay, Terry, you're going first. Uh, I'm just going to go for straight the one that's in front of me straight away, randomly. Now that Frampton has stepped up and won a title in his first fight at Featherweight, he should just keep stepping up weight divisions, ta- taking title shots on his first fight every time, because that's clearly his niche. <laughs> you know, all five foot three men should be fighting six foot nine heavyweights. And, they, you know, that's exactly what I want to see. You know, we see it as him fighting a big man. Tyson Fury sees it as midget boxing. You know, it's all kinds of entertainment. You know, why not? Stop off in the middle somewhere. Bully about Ali Purdy, get him out of retirement, you know. <laughs> just 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 literally have a circuit of washed up old fighters and just why not? From top to bottom. I think Frampton could do it. You know, what else do you do if you know the Irish and the troubles are over? <laughs> God fucking hell. <laughs> I'm so glad thirty seconds came up. So I couldn't have been any more glad. <laughs> just ruptured listeners. Oh. Uh, Okay, right, so got to dig you've us got to t- <laughs> right. top it or dig you out. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Martin, for you, I can't decide what my favourite performance of the season is, but it's definitely between Charles Martin and Mark Demory. Yeah, so I mean, if you're looking at what's the best performance, I mean, boxing, as we mentioned earlier, is ultimately a business. So it's how much money are you making for your performance? Now, Charles Martin was paid in the region of six million pounds to come over and fight Andy Joshua. He didn't even take a punch. Like Mark Demory, <laughs> he took a few punches and then like, but he got paid, I think it was somewhere around four or five hundred grand to come over. So what's the best performance is the amount, you know, if you charted it out, amount of money against amount of effort. If you've got high money, low effort, best performance. <laughs> well done. 30 seconds up. Well, well done, guys. Um, Martin, you did really well in addressing that. I didn't point. offend anyone. So. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and Terry, you managed to piss off an Terry. entire country. Maybe two or three. I mean, I'm not entirely sure. Okay, that is it. Right, just a brief point um, to note. We've, we've come to the end of the season and we're going to take a summer break. Um, that's not to say we won't be back at all during the off season, but we're we're aiming to come back beginning of September. We might drop one um, halfway through the season, but uh, through the off season. But it just depends. It just depends on what we can get together. But you're having a break. We're having a break at least. So don't expect to see us. It sounds next... like you're breaking up with someone. Fucking hell. Okay. <laughs> Well, anyway, I'll just let them know. to justify our actions, brother. Right, okay. okay. So we're not going to be around <laughs> the next few weeks. Um, we'll be back. Yeah. Yeah, but hey, in the meantime, do not forget www.newageboxing.co.uk. There'll still be content on there. Don't forget www.thesevenwolves.com. There'll still be content there. So there's always things to be getting involved with. Eh? No, boxing doesn't stop just because we're having a little break. Keep asking questions. Use the hashtag podfather. That allows us to sort of group them all together later down the line 
and stop forgetting questions, which we, you know, continually do and have probably done even today, maybe. But yeah, that's about it, really. Thank you very much. And more importantly, man, you guys have four weeks to tell as many friends as you can about what's about to come in September. Yeah. Start building the hype because we want to come back and we want 10,000 listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, guys. Goodbye. Thank you. Watch out.